Good to see you. Uh, if you're new, my name is Joel. I'm one of the leaders here at Emmanuel. We have teaching from the Bible every Sunday here. We're just finishing today uh, a series of messages that's taken us through this autumn term. And so next week we begin our Advent series in the build-up to Christmas. But today we finish the, the series on the Apostles' Creed, uh, this ancient summary of the Christian faith, which line by line describes the, the, the basics and the essentials of what Christianity teaches and what Christians uh, believe, what Christians are called to believe and confess from the heart. And this last line of all, uh, which we're investigating today, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So that is our theme today. Uh, to help us look at it, I'm going to read to you in a moment from the book of Isaiah. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, you might want to turn there with me. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. If you are in the book of Psalms, you then get Proverbs, you then get uh, Ecclesiastes, you get Son of Solomon, then you get Isaiah. And we're going to be reading from chapter 25, and just three verses from there, verses 6, 7, 8, oh, and 9, four verses in fact, and then we'll pray and get into it. But before I do that, let me mention one more time uh, the Live Lunch uh, podcast and Live Lunch Facebook Live event that we're doing, Instagram Live event that we're doing on Tuesdays at 12.30. Um, we've just launched it in the last few weeks. It's just half an hour of discussion and Q&A off the back of these Sunday messages. And so we, we want to ensure that we're interacting a little bit. If you want to join us and ask your questions on Facebook or Instagram, we will do our best to, to respond to some of them. Uh, there's always way more to say uh, every Sunday than gets said. And so we want to create opportunities to, to say it. So join us if you can for those live lunch occasions on your lunch break or uh, get it later when we start releasing it on podcast. Okay, this is Isaiah. This is one of the Old Testament prophets living hundreds of years before Jesus, but nevertheless describing the impact of what Jesus did uh, in terms of his power over the power of death. And it says this in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who you send to lead us into truth and to, Lord, speak to our lives by taking scripture and applying it to our hearts and bringing change, bringing love for you, bringing trust in you, bringing obedience to you. And we pray you do all of those things now. We pray that 
because of what you have to say to us today, we would look at our lives differently. We would look at death differently. We would look at our own deaths differently. We would look at eternity differently. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We don't have, as a church, any location out of all of our locations. Not, not one of them meets uh, next to a, a graveyard, not directly. Uh, if you were to go to church in this country uh, at any time in the last 1,500 years, it would be more likely rather than less likely, I suppose, that when you finished listening to the sermon, when you went through all the various aspects of the service and then left the building, uh, you would be confronted quite quickly with gravestones uh, on your way out, as well as having seen them on your way in. You might even have quite a few tombs within the confines of the building uh, while the service is going on. Um, that is not untypical uh, in Christian worship as it's been known globally from the earliest stages of the church. Uh, we don't do that, and perhaps it's a good thing. I'm, I'm kind of pleased that uh, I'm not surrounded by lots of gravestones right now. Um, and perhaps that, please that we're, we're not going to walk out amongst the dead uh, after this meeting. But nevertheless, I think perhaps there's something healthy about that pattern. Um, churches can do well to be frequently reminded of the realities of mortality. And actually, as a society, we are, I would submit to you, uh, unusually protected, unusually insulated uh, from the cold realities of death. It would be very strange uh, in previous generations for people to grow up all through their lives and not have to be confronted with the realities of death until they get to their middle years, uh, because Death was perhaps a bit more familiar. It was less of a stranger in generations gone by. Uh, people were used to far less of the effective medicine that we've been blessed with uh, in recent years uh, and probably far more used to conflicts, armed conflicts, lethal, fatal conflicts coming close to the door. Uh, the world is no less warlike in the 21st century, but the wars seem to happen in distant places. They happen on news bulletins, on TV screens, uh, on our phones. They, they don't happen a few yards away from our door. It's not that the men of the village are having to strap on swords every so often to protect the tribe. Um, we live in a, in, a, in a protected time, and we are perhaps uh, separated from some of the darker uh, facts and realities of mortality. One of my favorite writers, just to pick out an example from the, the top of my head, one of my favorite preachers from, from a few centuries back, uh, his wife bore him 11 children, 10 of whom did not make it to adulthood. And the, 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 the 11th died before he did. Uh, and so... Uh, that would have been seen, I'm sure, as ex extremely harsh and tragic, but sadly, it wasn't that unusual, nevertheless, because he just lived at a different time. 
and, and we're, we're incredibly protected by comparison. And maybe, maybe there, there can come with that a certain, I suppose, denial, a certain ability to exist as though death was not a reality, as though it's not actually coming to us. And yet we need to surely face the reality of it. I suppose for some of us, especially younger people, I, I, I guess I'm getting to the point in my life where mortality and the, 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 the fact that my kind of health and my youth are no longer things I can just depend upon and guarantee and assume, this, this is starting to get into my frame of mind a little more than it would have done in, in previous times. And certainly for younger people, the idea of even being cold in a grave is, a, is, is almost ridiculous. It's certainly, it's not a common thought. And yet, I, I want to invite you today, I think it's part of my responsibility as a preacher of the Bible, to invite you today to consider it. To consider the idea, even imagining the, the limbs that you... you you, you hopefully have good use of at the moment and the youth and the, the blood pumping around your body and think, yeah, I know I'm alive now. Maybe you feel a sense of hope and dreams and, and aspirations and ambition and energy. But I could take you to graveyards just a few miles from here or less and show you fields of people who would have at one stage said exactly the same thing. This is just the sheer fact, the reality that... that that we face death, we face what seems an end, we face mortality, and, and that's actually, that's got to be somehow not denied. We, 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 we've got to get past the cheapness, get past the kind of, the strange kind of inverse kind of nothingness of, of kind of hashtag slogans like you only live once and, and the various ways we kind of try to sort of brighten up this issue. The various ways we try to perhaps trivialize it. We, we surely need to think more profoundly than that. We surely need to uh, consider this in a bit more uh, of the, the, the starkness that the Bible brings to us. The interesting thing looking at the early Christians, the first few generations of Christians, is that actually their attitude to death was different and very different than the culture in which they did find themselves. In, in the times of the Roman Empire, bodies were legally expected to be buried far from the city. The, the whole idea of death had to be kind of expunged, you know, set away, to kind of let it be divorced from, from life within the city. Um, whereas the Christians, they, they made a habit of meeting in catacombs, in, in, in places, even places of burial, and even seemed to sort of keep the bones and the remains of their martyrs close by <laughs> intentionally, as if taking some weird and from the view of the outsiders, perverse, seemingly, uh, obsession and interest in death. But their interest was not actually in the death that people thought they were interested in. It was in the life that had triumphed over it. The, the early Christians 
lived in the light of what they saw as ultimate conquest over death. This was the thing that they, they, they understood as a kind of victory cry. It, it, was, it was kind of the, the, the background soundtrack of their lives was this, this exultant sense of triumph over the horrible enemy of death. They, they, they weren't being blasé, they weren't being weird, they weren't being masochistic, they, they were not morbid and obsessive, they were delighted and overjoyed to know that their conquering king, their champion, had successfully overcome the worst enemy of all. That was the atmosphere of the early church, it would seem. And it's, it's, it's sort of predicted in the verses I've read to you from Isaiah, writing, as I said, many centuries before the church began. He talks about the one who will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Even the, the words swallow is a powerful one because death is surely the great swallower. Death is the, the, the huge chasm, the huge dustbin, the, the great thing that seems to suck into its gaping jaws everything. Everything is, is brought down into it. It's the kind of final word, surely. It's the winner. It's the thing that swallows everything. And yet there's somebody who will swallow up the swallower. There's someone who has a bigger mouth still, you could say. There's a champion even over this horrible foe. And so no wonder the early church had this extraordinary confidence over death, this sense of, you know, we, we don't mind being around death. We're not intimidated by it. We don't find it scary. We don't find it uh, frightening. We're not bothered by it. We are overwhelmingly confident, even in the teeth of it, because we know our victor has vanquished it. We're confident of him. And we're confident of our victor in a special way because not only is he greater than death, not only is he more powerful than death, but he's one of us. He's one of our own, as we sing in the football terraces. He, he's one of our own. This one who came to defeat death, he, he got baptized with us. He, he, he came amongst us. He was, he was born as one of us. He identified with sinners. He spent time with us. He walked our road. He took on our problems. Didn't have to. The, the eternal God in all of his glory and unchanging perfection did not have to come into our world and feel our pain and face down our opponents and struggle with all the, the wearying frailties of this earthly existence. And yet he chose to gladly. And he lined up for baptism. He went down into the waters. He said, I will take on the problems that you... Your problems will be my problems. Your enemies will be my enemies. And what enemies they were. As soon as he was baptized, it says, on the banks of the Jordan, he was sent out into the wilderness to face hunger. There's an enemy. To face temptation. Evil temptation to do wicked things. 
that was an enemy that was too much for our forefather, Adam. And yet Jesus faced down that enemy. Jesus then had to face sickness. He overtook even the power of sickness. He overcame when, when others were sick and looked beyond life, sorry, beyond any hope, he was able to break in and bring healing to people's bodies, physical sickness. He seemed to have power even over that enemy. He had power over the enemy of poverty and famine when there was a whole crowd of thousands of people waiting on his words and then suddenly no one has brought any food. There's no provision for their food. What's going to happen? Jesus provides a hearty meal, a banquet, a banquet on, on the mountain even. It's, it's, it reminds me of this very verse from Isaiah. Je- Jesus, Jesus is able to overcome even the enemy of poverty and famine. Jesus overcame the great enemy of natural disaster. When, when a storm came and threatened the lives of the sailors, the fishermen that he was traveling with, Jesus could rebuke the wind and it died down along with the waves. Jesus is so powerful. He can overcome every enemy that seems to surround us in this kind of frantic life filled with panic and anxiety. We, we found someone who's more powerful than sickness, more powerful than famine, more powerful than temptation. They, they took him to, to, to the greatest debaters of his age, people in Jerusalem who were brilliant at arguing and, and uh, bringing a, a case against you and making you look an idiot. Jesus was able to withstand even their arguments. He made them look idiots. They, they shut their mouths because of him. They didn't know what to say next when they spoke to Jesus. He could take anyone, this man. And he's one of our own. He's one of us, our brother. He's one of us. We're winning because he's winning. But surely not the enemy of death. Death is the last enemy. This is the, death is the, the, the horrible foe, the one that we can't face down. I mean, maybe, maybe there have been great, great leaders. Maybe there have even been miracle workers. Maybe there have been great debaters. <sighs> Not many have been able to shut storms down. Not many have been able to call the waves to cease. But nevertheless, death, death has got to be the great enemy. Could it be that he would defeat even this one? And that's what the Easter story is all about. It's, it's about our... Our friend, our brother, our, our new man, our representative going through even to face the worst, to face the Goliath, to stand before him. Having taken on the lions and bears, he takes on the Goliath. And he even defeats him. He even takes him down. And because he's taken him down, we've taken him down because he's one of our own. Our man won. And so we win with him. That's, the, that's the victory cry of the early church. And that's the victory cry of, of Christians through the ages. That's got to be where we stand. That's got to be the ground we occupy. That's why Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 1, uh, verse 18, He is the firstborn from amongst the dead, the head of the church. The firstborn. What is the church? The church is those who are brought from the dead. He's the firstborn. He's the head. We're the body. I've said this before. If, if somebody puts their head around the door in my house, I, I am wise to assume that their body is not far behind. 
we don't have many disembodied heads floating around in my house. If, if, if a head comes around the door, I think, well, probably the rest of your anatomy is there. Jesus has put his head around the door of, of, of death and resurrection. His body is not far behind. This is our hope. Our hope is resurrection with him. And this is where we've got to stand. This is where we find confidence, friends. This is where we find hope. This is, this is where we overcome fear. And we, we, we can overcome fear. We're called to. We're called to be free from the crippling fear of death. That, that we've managed by artificial means to try and dampen down and hide from and insulate ourselves from by modern medicine, sending soldiers off to other places and trying to comfort ourselves with entertainment and everything from Netflix to, to, to keeping really fit to self-help regimes, anything we can to stave off the reality Friends, none of those will defeat the enemy. Not really. We need, we need a champion. We need a victor. But, but before we finish, the, the reality is that the victory over death as a kind of an end moment, as a bookend to our existence, in itself isn't the whole story. The good news is gooder than that. Because I think actually for many of us, I know for me as a child, the idea of living forever and not having to die, <laughs> but existing in some way, in itself, I wasn't sure how much that appealed. There were moments when I was actually quite frightened of it. I thought, wouldn't I just get bored? Am I sure that I, I, would, I would enjoy it? What does it mean? It seems strange to imagine what, living forever, literally without end. Is that a good thing? Could that be a good thing? And for some, it's, it's even seen as almost a negative thing. But I want to suggest before I finish a couple of key things from this very bit of the Bible I read to you that will give us perspective and help us to see why this is such a, uh, an attractive and tantalizing hope. And the first is actually, I say, let me say, both of these are from the creed. Both of these are from the lines that we've read. The resurrection of the body. And secondly, what do we mean by the life eternal or the life everlasting? But first of all, the resurrection of the body. And, and for this, I want to show you really, read to you again verse 6 of Isaiah 25, where this is a description of what God's invited people to enjoy eternally. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. There's a deliberate focus on physical gratification. Food, wine, marrow. It's, it's very physical. It's very tangible. And, and that is absolutely essential to how we understand Jesus' victory over death. Jesus defeated death by coming back to a physical life. And Jesus calls us to the same. We believe in the resurrection of the body. 
not just the resurrection in some cloudy shape. The resurrection of the blob, the resurrection of the ghost, the resurrection of the, the spirit, the resurrection of the soul. That's not resurrection. That's not special. Some kind of ethereal ongoing existence is, is really, really secondary at best. It's, it's, not, it's not the prize. If, if Jesus had not physically, bodily risen from the tomb on Easter Sunday, he would not have defeated death, he would have merely redefined it. Death would still be the winner. It would still be the last word. It would just be that we've kind of somehow got a consolation prize. We've somehow just managed to scrape a sort of a win out of the horrible situation. No, the defeat of death is complete and final. The last enemy, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 15, has been defeated. Jesus has risen bodily from the dead. The, the fact is, that God wants a material, eternal world is absolutely at the heart of the Christian faith. In the beginning, the, God created the heavens and the earth. And actually, if you follow this through the creed, you'll, you'll notice the, the insistent physicality of it. I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. And, and, and in Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord, who was conceived with the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, born in, a, in the womb of a peasant girl in Judea, in Nazareth, in Galilee. She, she was just a young girl and God showed up. The eternal God, the unchanging eternal God showed up in her womb. Which, by the way, in the ancient Gnostic religious world would have been shocking and abhorrent. The idea that a god would show up in the womb of a woman, would show up in the body of a little girl. It was really misogynistic, the kind of Gnostic, ancient Gnostic religions of the time. And, and not just misogynistic against girls, but against the body in general. The physical world is not, not right. The wrongness of the world is in its physicality. That's what's wrong. And, and salvation is to escape the physical and to be in some kind of blissful, heavenly existence where we've escaped from this nasty kind of physicality of the world, from this mortal coil, as, as Hamlet puts it. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is not the escape from physicality. Christianity is actually more physical, to inherit something that is more substantial. That's why when Jesus shows up, after his resurrection, it's like he's almost awkwardly insistent on showing that he is physical. Give me some fish to eat, he says. And he eats the fish in front of his disciples. He touch, touch, my, touch these scars. It's like an imagine saying, yeah, yeah, I don't want to. I said, no, touch them. You better, you will touch them. I want you to know this has happened. <laughs> this is real. This is what you're called to inherit. A, a restored physical material creation is God's plan. Where, yeah, things like food, drink, the things that you enjoy about this world. See, what we struggle with as ordinary people is the notion that God wants to invite us away from the things that we enjoy. Maybe some of you struggle with that now. Maybe that's one of the reasons some people avoid Christianity. Maybe that's why some of you have never come to faith in Christ because you think the Christian God wants me to stop enjoying the world, wants me to stop enjoying good things. As if, as if God didn't invent those good things. As if God's never heard of food and drink. 
as if God didn't put them there as a good father, the father of lights. Every good and perfect gift is from above. He's the one that provides them for you. And he knows you. He knows what's good. He knows what's enjoyable. He knows what's pleasing. And he's restoring and creating not just an ethereal, cloudy existence. He's preparing a reboot of all creation. And those things that you and I enjoy about this world, we enjoy just a trace of what's to come. Even the idea of, of a new heavens and a new earth. The Bible does not talk about us going to heaven. It doesn't talk about Jesus returning and taking us all away to heaven. It talks about heaven coming down to earth. It talks about the whole universe being restored, a new heavens and a new earth. That's what we've been called to anticipate. A new heavens and a new earth. And, the, and these things joined together in some way. Even the scale of the universe starts to make sense here. Perhaps some of us, and I know I've thought this often, thought, why did God make the galaxies and the universe so stupendously big? Why? What's the point of things that exist literally millions of light years away? Why would he do that? Well, first of all, for his own pleasure. Okay, So he, he can enjoy stuff that we're never going to get to. But I wonder, and this may be more speculative, I wonder if actually in a restored universe, these galaxies and planets that seem dead to us now, maybe the reason they're dead is because they've been subject to the same futility that brings about pollution and, and, and darkness and horror in this, on this planet. The stuff that goes wrong on this planet goes wrong because of the inheritance of our sin, our departure from God. Maybe the whole universe, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, has been held, in subject, held, held subject to futility. In other words, the universe is dead and dark, apparently. That's what it seems from what we get through telescopes. Because of sin. Sin's been defeated at the cross. Who knows what a restored universe will be like? Who knows how much exploring there'll be? And who knows how much we'll be able to explore with new bodies? And whatever it is that God is preparing. Listen, anything you enjoy about this world, you have to multiply it by more zeros than we could actually fix on the end to understand how small it is by comparison to what is looked forward to, what we can anticipate. The resurrection of the body, a physical, created, tangible, real world. It's no mistake that Jesus turns up and makes a barbecue on the beach for his friends after the resurrection. We Brightonians, we know how to enjoy life. I bet if I, if I said to, to people in Emmanuel, what are the things that you most enjoy? And you know, would, you, would you see a barbecue on the beach as a positive thing? And I know it would because many of you don't turn up to church on, in the summer when that's a possibility. Jesus, when he shows up from rising from the dead, what does he do? He provides a barbecue on the beach for his friends. He wants to show us, this is what I'm like. This is my way of doing life. And he wants to invite us to a genuine, joyful existence. The second thing, we talked about the resurrection of the body, but what do we mean by the life everlasting? The last line, in fact, of the Apostles' Creed. The life everlasting Again, that word everlasting could sound a bit foreboding, just everlasting, just rotating. What, what actually does that mean? Well, let's think about the word life. <laughs> life. We, we, we would, I mean, life can be a prison sentence. I sentence you to life. It's a pretty dark use of the word. 
And then, and then we talk occasionally, my friend Glenn Scrivener puts it like this, that very occasionally we, we might have the opportunity to use the, the phrase, this is the life, in a positive sense. You know, this is the life. The thing that I'm most enjoying doing, this is the life. How many times have you said that in the last 20 years? How many times have you? Maybe you could count it on your hands, I wonder. It seems to me that the, the, the experience of saying this is the life, it's not perhaps as, as dominant in our ordinary 24-7 existence as we might hope. Life just goes on. It's just organic existence. The life. We seem to think there's something else. There's some quality. It's not about quantity only. It's about quality. And I think when we think that way, we're getting closer to what the Bible has to say because the Bible does talk about life qualitatively. In fact, the Bible talks about life as a person. The Bible specifically wants us clear on this. Jesus' dear friend, the Apostle John, near the end of his life, talked about this, near the end of his earthly, this present age life. In him, referring to Jesus, was life. And the life was the light. Of men. Later on in John chapter 14, Jesus calls himself the life. He even refers to himself elsewhere as the resurrection and the life. I am. Who on earth could ever say something so weird? I am the life. That's what he says. Jesus claims to be life. In essence, you want to know what life is? Well, it's skiing. It's, it's, it's dinner with friends after a successful day. It's, it's, it's a holiday. It's, it's what, I don't know what for you life is. Maybe it's just chilling with a box set. I don't know. Jesus says, I am. What? I am. No, no, no. I know what life is. I know. We think we know what life is. Like someone who's seen the moon at night thinks they know what light is. But the, the moon is just a reflection of the sun. The moon is just taking light from somewhere else. Everything we know or think we know about the goodness of life is really just a reflection. It, it's, it's derived. It comes from a source so great we couldn't stare at it without hurting our eyes. Jesus, I am the life. No wonder death couldn't hold him. The life, the son of life rose on the third day. And so if it couldn't hold him, it won't hold us. We'll inherit life. We'll be joined with Jesus, who is the life. And, and that is a deeply satisfying prospect. He, he said in John chapter 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. You want to know what life is? Get to know Jesus. That's life. That's real, eternal life. And again, near the very end of the Bible, same man, John, Jesus' friend, puts it like this. I love this. I love these words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it. 
This is not someone who's met a guru. This is not someone who's met a philosopher. This is not even someone who's met a, a celebrity. He's met a man who is the life. He can't get over it. He's writing about it decades later. He's an old man. When he met Jesus, he was a teenager. He cannot stop talking like this. He says, The life was made manifest. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. An old man still can't be Silence. He's overwhelmed. Paul says in Colossians 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him. He is your life. What does it mean for me to, to truly live? It's to have Jesus. That's what it is. To have Jesus is to be truly alive because he is life. And that's why this writer says, we've waited for him. We've waited for him. In verse 9, the one who satisfies, he says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him. <laughs> what are you waiting for? Who, I should say, are you waiting for? Is there someone you're waiting for? You think, I don't, I, the prospect of living forever, it's not all that attractive in itself. I think I agree with you. I don't think I would want to just be in it for the quantity. Just going on and on. You'd get bored, wouldn't you? Of course you'd get bored of you. I would get bored of me. But I'll never get bored of him. I will never get bored of him and neither will you. This is the one you're waiting for. You think, well, I'm, I'm wait many of us, we're waiting and longing and hoping for things in life now, thinking that they'll bring us the satisfaction we long for. We're hoping in something to just fill gaps and fill holes and help us to feel like there's a reason I'm here. It's, it's making me feel satisfied, making me feel like somehow happy. I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. Don't we all just want to be happy? Of course we do. Of course we do. It's how God's made us, actually. But he's also made us so that we won't find our happiness except in him. We won't find it. Our satisfaction, our rest, our contentment until we found him. And that's what eternity is going to be about. It's about knowing the one who is uniquely satisfying because only he can be. So the way that C.S. Lewis puts it, the books or the music or the barbecues or whatever you want to put in that gap in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. But it's a country to which we are all invited. And Jesus says to you, have you waited for me? Wait for me. Wait on me. Look 
to me. Look to my coming. Whatever you're waiting for, my friend, be like Isaiah. Say, this is the Lord. We waited for him. This is the one who has power over death and who is life in himself. And this is the way to overcome all of our yearnings and longings and deprivations, all of our wants and needs. Many of us as believers, we go through years, decades of feeling our lack. The world tells us that the way to be satisfied is in a sexual relationship. Many of us following Jesus means that we don't have one. He might call us to live single, to live celibate. What kind of life is that? Well, maybe in the world's eyes in itself, it's not much of a life. But even, even sexual union or financial success or the regard of your friends or celebrity status or career ascendancy, none of these things in themselves are what he is alone. And to the one who's waited for him purely, faithfully, chastely, very often, you can be confident there's someone waiting to, to bring you into experience of joy that will be everlasting and truly fulfilling and as substantial and real as anything you could ever know. If you don't know Jesus, you must know him. And my friend, now is the time to call on him. Now is the time. Not tomorrow. What if, what if you were to die today? Face the reality, face mortality, face the fact. Would you go to be with him? Would you go to be with him if you died today? Prepare yourself, face the reality and call out to him. Let's pray together right now. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the great hero he is. We thank you for the source of life and joy that he is. And we pray that we would, each of us, know in this life now and in the life to come the fullness of this. According to your mercy, in his name, amen.